there's a story is told of an Irishman who uh, spent the night all night drinking at his favorite local pub. The bartender finally said it was closing time, and at that, the Irishman tried to stand up and leave, only to fall flat on his face. He tried to stand up one more time and had the same result. He figured he'd go ahead and drag himself outside the pub because when he got outside, he would get some fresh air and maybe that would sober him up. And he pulled himself up off of the, uh, the railing that was there, the stairway. And sure enough, as he tried to stand again, he fell flat on his face. He decided the only thing to do at this point was to go ahead and drag himself the four blocks to his home because he knew that if he called his wife at this particular time at night, he'd be in deep trouble, particularly because she was very opposed to the behavior that he found himself in. And so he, he dragged himself down the street, he got to his house, dragged himself through the front door, dragged himself up to his bedroom, and fortunately his wife was sound asleep. So he figured he'd try one last time, he dragged himself up, stood up, and leaned against the bed, and sure enough he fell flat into bed, flat on his face, and passed out. He woke in the morning having his wife stand over him, giving him a little bit of a hard time. You were out drinking again, weren't you, last night? What did I tell you? I'm so sick and tired of this. He said, I, I, I wasn't out drinking last night. Why, why do you say that I was out drinking? Why are you always accusing me of things like that? I wasn't out drinking at all. I mean, I can't understand this. Every time some, I mean, you're always accusing me. Why are you accusing me? I wasn't out drinking last night. Why do you say that? She said, because the bartender called from the pub. You left your wheelchair there again last night. Some of you liked it, some of you didn't. <laughs> What's new? What's the point? There is a moral to the story. The point is it's so easy to deceive ourselves into believing that our behavior is acceptable. It's so easy to deceive ourselves into rationalizing what we're doing is right. And it's easy to be deceived by others as well, trying to rationalize and explain away their behavior. You know, it's kind of interesting. We live in a world today that's adrift. If you stop and think about it, we're lost in a sea of moral ambiguity and rationalization. We have witnessed here in our, in our own country recently sad reality in the behavior and the explanation of his behavior by our president. We all need an objective standard. We all need an objective standard that goes beyond the desires and the emotions of a moment in time. One that will provide an anchor and stability that we can hang on to. One that will keep us from becoming far further and further adrift at sea. And uh, this past week I was out on a job site and uh, we happened to be underneath a building. And what was interesting about this experience was as we were looking and we we're under the building and we we're trying to get a, a gauge on where we were, you know, I was convinced and I would have been willing to bet money on it, which I don't do, but I, you know, it's a figure speech. But uh, I would have been willing to bet money that I, I thought I knew that what I knew was accurate. And we got in a little debate, my partner and I underneath and the owner of the building, and you know, and I'm thinking, well, you know, it's, it's such and such a distance to where we were, and here's where we are, and, and being under a building, you can tend to lose your bearings a little bit. You know, and the owner of the building saying, no, you know what, I know exactly, I've crawled under this building for 30 years, I'm telling you right now, I know where we are. And I'm going, well, you know what, it doesn't make any sense. He said, well, just go back up, go back up on ground level and take a tape measure and start to tape things off, which I did, which basically led me to the conclusion that he was right and I was wrong. Even though I was convinced underneath looking around that I thought I knew what was going on, I had lost my way. And you know, it reminded me of, of the reality that we all need a standard that is objective as far as measurement is concerned. We've all been turned around when we've been driving. We've all gotten lost at one point or another. And that's what's wonderful about having a compass or a direction 
that is objective, that always points to the magnetic north. We need that so we know where we're going or where we're heading. It's nice to have uh, you know, a gauge, for example. I mean, you, you've had probably the same kind of debates. Why just put gas in the car? Well, if you just put gas in a car, why is it on E? And you didn't go anywhere. I don't know, but it's, 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 the gas gauge must be wrong. So you go to the gas station and you fill up the car and sure enough, ding, 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 ding. Oh, you know what? It was on E after all, wasn't it? How did that happen? I don't know how it happened, but the bottom line is, is that we have an objective form of measurement. I mean, we even have in this country a measurement of standards. You know, a, 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 an agency, a department of standards and measures so that we can have an objective way to measure that goes beyond subjectivity. You know, we have laws, they're federal and they're state and they're local, and the purpose of those laws are, are to hold us accountable to that objective standard rather than the emotional subjectivity of our own individual behavior. You know, the, our, our court systems and our jails are filled with people who believe and have rationalized that what they did wasn't, wasn't wrong. And yet, as we back them up to the wall of objective behavior or standards, which we call laws, they fall short of those laws. Therefore, they're guilty as charged. Therefore, they, they experience the consequences of their actions. It's really important that we recognize and understand that we all need objective standards to which we are going to be measured ourselves. And all of this brings us back to the, to the point of uh, the Word of God. You know, Psalm 119 says this of God's Word. It says that the Word of God are the laws of God. They're God's testimonies, meaning that God testifies what He says about this in here is true. They're His laws. They're His statutes. They're His precepts. They're His commandments. They're His judgments. They're His testimonies. And all of this brings us back to our study in the book of Daniel. And if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Daniel chapter 6. Because basically what we're going to find in this particular passage that we have come to, to uh, identify as Daniel on the den of lions, we're going to find the need, as we, as we look in here, the need for objective standards by which to measure individual behavior. And in this particular passage, we'll start with verse 1 and we'll go through verse 10. And there's going to be seven areas that are brought to our attention. We've had an opportunity to look at one of them in depth. We'll continue to look at some of the others and then next week wrap up the whole chapter. But right at this point, we find that it seemed good to Darius in, in verse 1 of chapter 6 to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they should be in charge of the whole kingdom and over them three commissioners of whom Daniel was one. And these satraps might be accountable to them. There's the word accountability and that the king might not suffer loss. Their purpose of being in this administrative position was to make sure that the king did not suffer any financial loss and any loss of his ability to govern the people. It says, Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to governmental affairs but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and there was no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the laws of his God. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows, King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the perfects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days 
shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. It's fascinating as we look at this particular passage, as we see the life of Daniel once again, we learned in our times together that the position of Daniel, he is elevated to a position of leadership. He is back in a position of authority once again, and he makes an impression on his boss, which has been his M.O. from the very beginning. He makes an impression on Darius. And the Bible says he had, he, that he had an extraordinary spirit. We've come to learn that an extraordinary spirit, according to the word of God, is a person who is, uh, is saturated with knowledge of God's word and then through obedience and by the power of God's spirit walks in faith in obedience to what he's already learned. To have an extraordinary spirit, according to God, is a, purpose, is a person who's not afraid to be accounted for according to God. That would take a look at everything that he's got that, that he's got in his word, and he would look at it, and he would follow it, and he would just be obedient. And because of that, he stood out among the people, and he was extraordinary in what he did. Not only was he extraordinary, but we see as we go through this that he's about to be promoted because of this particular uh, um, extraordinary spirit or abilities that he has. You know, it's interesting as we look at this. Darius was so impressed that, uh, that he decided to promote him over all the others that were available to be promoted. Now, as a result of that, you think, man, this guy's a great guy, and you think everybody would be happy about it, but you know what? That wasn't the case. We found that there was a plot against Daniel. And the plot, basically, as we've discovered throughout the book of Daniel, as we look at Daniel's life, Daniel had an impeccable record. He had an impeccable record. He has continually excelled at every task that he was, be that he was given. Every challenge that he had, he met the challenge head on. He had an impeccable record. What's interesting about this, we learned from the very beginning, from chapter 1, that Daniel and his, ten, and then his friends were ten times better than everybody else that was in the king's employ at that time. Can you imagine having that kind of a reputation? That when you were looked at it, you said, you know what, you stand, you know, you're so far ahead of everybody else. They were ten times better than the rest of the king's employees which is fascinating as we see it. Daniel had the ability to interpret dreams that God had given him. Not only did he have the ability to interpret dreams, he also had the ability to make the dream itself known, which had never been done in human history. So he made the dream known, and he interpreted the dream. He was given a ta task, he excelled at the task. And you'd think that this guy would be a great guy to work for. You'd think he'd be a great guy to have in any organization or any company. You'd think everybody around him would love the guy. But if you thought that, you'd be wrong, because that's not the case. Notice this in verse 4, it says, when the commissioners, what's interesting is when the word got out that Daniel was about to be promoted, it says the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. What happened? The ugly head of jealousy and envy emerged. Isn't that interesting? If you are a person and you are a successful person or you're a person that's being blessed by God in some way, do not be surprised if those in the shadow of your success do not find your success pleasing to them. They were envious. They were jealous. 
You know, what's interesting is envy is often generated within the shadow of highly successful people, if you stop and think about it. But the question you've got to ask yourself is why? You know, we always hear it, it described this way, petty jealousy. It's petty. But the reality of it is, is that, you know what, many of us don't have a choice. It is a product of what God says is, a, is the fall of man. Notice in Galatians chapter 5. Turn with me ahead to Galatians 5. I want to show you something as it ties into this whole story so we understand a little better this whole problem of jealousy. The Bible tells us that envy comes in the package that God calls the flesh. Now the flesh is our sin nature and it's consistent with man and our fall away from God's grace. Basically, envy or jealousy is something that's common to those who at this particular point have never come to know the Lord. Look at it says in Galatians chapter 5, 16 through 26, we read this. But see, Paul is talking to believers, those who have put their faith and trust in Christ, says, but I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. If you ever want a good example of a guy who's walking, quote, by the Spirit, basically does not over-Christianize our language sometimes. In simple terms, what it means is this. Take a look at the life of Daniel. Daniel learned the right way to live, and, and he just was obedient and lived it according to the, the power that God gives us to live a life pleasing to God. And that's what he's saying when he says, walk by the Spirit. Basically, he says, walk by the Spirit, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these two are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. This was the argument that the Apostle Paul had in the book of Romans when he said this. He goes, Lord, why is it that the things I want to do, the things I know I should do, the things that you tell me to do, why is it that I don't do those things? And why is it that I do exactly the opposite of those things? And he said, wretched man that I am, who can set me free from this bondage that I find myself in? And he said, thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What he's saying is, is that when we believe in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, that God unlocks the shackles of sin in our life and drops those chains to the floor and we're no longer bound to live that way anymore. The world that we live in that has never experienced the grace and forgiveness of God, they don't have a choice. They live the way they live because they cannot choose to live any differently. They are chained to that behavior because it's evidence of the fact that they need to be forgiven by God and freed from, quote, what God says sin or not measuring up to the standard that God has set, which is the word of God. So what he's saying to us is this. You know what? If you've come to faith in Christ, you no longer have to walk that way. Well, which way is that? He's saying, hey, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the deeds of the flesh or of those who have never come into a relationship with God are evident. So the needs of the flesh are evident. They're immorality and impurity and sensuality, which means there's no standards for behavior. There's no objective measurement. The world we live in lives according to what? Hey, if that feels good, I'm going to do it. And if I can get away with it, I'm going to do it. And even if I get caught, I'm not going to necessarily admit that what I was doing was wrong just because you think it's wrong. I'm going to do it until somebody tells me I've got to stop doing it. And if the polls indicate that I need to stop, then I will. But if they don't, I'll keep doing it. Why? I don't have an objective standard of measurement. So the deeds of the flesh are evident. There's no standards. Immorality, which means what? Sexual behavior that's not pleasing to God. That's what he's saying. And the only sexual behavior that is pleasing to God is the sexual behavior or the sexual relationship of a husband and a wife. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 7. God ordains that, blesses that, protects it, and says, hey, this is what sex is all about. Enjoy it in the, in, in the husband-wife relationship, period. Any sexual activity outside of that is wrong, no matter how man tries to define it. 
I didn't have sex with her. She had sex with me. <laughs> Idolatry, sorcery, which has to do with drug usage, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, coveting, jealousy. You have it, I want it. That's what envy is. Have you ever had that happen in your life? You think you're pretty content till you go to somebody else's house and get that trick new CD system, nice big old, big old, big old picture in picture, big screen TV. Got that nice new 98 version of a home versus your 75 version. You know what I'm saying? Got that nice new set of wheels. Ooh, sweet, smells good, get inside it. You just can't wait till the kids spill something. You know? Kind of like, that's it, isn't it? It's wanting what somebody else has. That's envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. What God is saying very clearly, understand, anyone who participates on a regular basis, on a habitual basis as a lifestyle, this particular lifestyle is demonstrated by God. The Bible says, don't deceive yourself, don't fool yourself, that you are not of God, that you are dead in your sins. It says, but, the contrast to that, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Isn't that a wonderful, very clear contrast between two ways of living? And we need to recognize and understand that envy is not a way of life that is pleasing to God, but it is common to those who have not come to know God. And so as we look at Daniel's... Uh, cohort, so to speak, if we look at those he works with, as we look at those who work for him, it should come as no surprise that since they do not know God, they would live according to their own desires and their own, quote, flesh, which in this particular case is, you know what, we don't like the fact that this guy is going to be promoted. We don't like that. Daniel was a man who chose excellence. Those around him chose conspiracy. There was a plot against Daniel. And there was probably two causes for it if you go back to the book of Daniel. I mean, it, it doesn't take a genius to see that these are two probable causes of their envy, and they're pretty common today in our workplace. Uh, the first cause was that of uh, what, what I would call anti, or, or, or anti-Semitism or his racial heritage. They had a problem with him being promoted because he was Jewish. They had a problem with him being promoted because they had a problem with the Jewish people. We see that even in our world today, where we have a problem if somebody's promoted simply because we look at the color of their skin and we say, oh, you know what, well, that's not fair. Well, why isn't it fair? I don't understand that. They had a problem with him. They envied this particular promotion that was upcoming. The second reason that they envied his promotion was because he was rapidly promoted and he was the new kid on the block. If you stop and think about it, this man, Daniel, worked for Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. He worked for Belshazzar and the kingdom of Babylon, whom the Medes and the Persians just defeated, and they took a guy off of the defeated team, they put him in a position of power, and all of a sudden, he was going to get promoted 
before the Persians who had been in this army and in this administration for a number of years. How many times do you ever hear that in your workplace? Well, that's not fair. He's a new guy. She's a new guy. I've been here for 20 years, and you're going to put out the new person over me? Wah. I mean, we hear that. Wah. And you've got to ask yourself the question, why is that? Well, you've been doing the last 20 years. Maybe you didn't excel in what you're supposed to be doing. Wah. So we look at that, and they, and they said, that's not fair. So Daniel, you know, what's interesting is since Daniel's, uh, his conduct was above reproach, he didn't uh, provide them with any ammunition that we saw last time because it says that, look in verse 4, the commissioners and satraps began to find, try to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But look at this. They couldn't find anything. They couldn't find a thing. Isn't that great? Clean. So they came up with a plan. They knew he was faithful. They knew he wasn't negligent. They knew there wasn't any corruption. And they dug for it, couldn't find it. Then these men said this in verse 5. Oh, I know, we got a, we got a plan. We shall not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel. Look what it says. Unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. May all of us be guilty of that. Huh? Think about it. They came to the conclusion, the only way we're going to get this guy is that he is so consistent in his love and obedience to his God that we're going to have to find something there that we can use and turn it against him. What a wonderful testimony that would be for every one of us. Man, we can't find any corruption, can't find any negligence. The guy's faithful. Uh, man, you know what? The only thing we're going to be able to do is let's get him on grounds of his love for God and his integrity to the Word of God that he's obedient in everything God asked him to do. Hey, let's go after him there. Isn't that great? I think that'd be great, man. That'd be wonderful. He was known for his loyalty to God. And I'll guarantee you this. Do you think for a moment that if you were around Daniel that there wasn't going to be opportunities for Daniel to sit you down and tell him about the God who created him, the God who loved him, the God who delivered him on a regular basis. You, you, you don't think for a minute that Daniel kept that secret, do you? Because let's face it, every time something came up in his life, in Nebuchadnezzar's administration and Belshazzar's administration, every time he had a chance, he turned the glory and praise back to God. Hey, this isn't about me. This is about God. God did it all. I can't interpret dreams. I can't reveal dreams. I don't know anything. God allows me this information. He tells me this information so that I can be faithful and share it with you. I'm not taking any credit. I'll tell you what. You couldn't work with this guy without this guy telling you about the love of God. And they all knew it. And they recognized how consistent he was. And that was where they were going to go and get him. That was how they were going to go after him. Can you imagine throughout Daniel's life? What was the first thing that we learned about Daniel? Very first thing. Hey, you know what? They offered him a diet that was wrong according to the word of God. What did he do? The first thing he did was say, hey, I can't eat that stuff. But I got another plan for you. Let me challenge you. Let me eat this. And if everything's okay at the end of 10 days, uh, then everybody, there's no, no, nothing ventured, nothing gained, no harm done. Uh, this would be great. When he was told the, the vision of the, the panorama of world history before Nebuchadnezzar, that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom wouldn't last and there would be subsequent kingdoms that would come after him, what did Daniel do? Man, I, I better manage the news because they're not going to like to hear this. He just told it the way it was. When Belshazzar had a dream and the handwriting was on the wall, so to speak. And don't you love that, by the way? Interesting, isn't it? I was thinking about that just the other day. We, make the, we have that expression in society today. Hey, man, the handwriting's on the wall. Hello, where do you think that came from? 
It's exactly where it came from, the handwriting's on the wall. It means that, you know what, this is what God has to say and it's not going to be changed. And so Daniel, as he interpreted what God had him to interpret, he didn't soften the blow. He just told it the way it was. He spoke the truth in love and the certainty of God's judgment was coming. But he didn't back down, he never compromised, and he never chickened out, so to speak. Because he recognized why, walking in the spirit of God, God hasn't given us a spirit of timidity or cowardice, but he's given us a spirit of power and might that we can be obedient to the word of God. That's what he did. You don't like to hear it too bad. I just got to tell it the way it is anyway. I don't have a choice. So he didn't try to manage the news. He never wavered. He never compromised. He was consistent. And what's amazing is we talked about it last time. I love this. I keep throwing this up here. Every time he was obedient to God, he found himself between the rock and the hard spot. It's just continual. Every time he found himself, here I am again, Lord. This is going to be interesting. How's this one going to turn out? His conduct was above reproach. His conviction became the point of their attack. And may that become the, the point of all of our attacks rather than our lack of faithfulness, our negligence, our own corruption. Hey, let's all be attacked because we're faithful in our love for God and obedient to the word of God. What do you say about that? That'd be great. His conduct was above reproach. His conviction was the point of the attack. Now, what's interesting is look at this conspiracy that we find here. The conspiracy was presented as though everyone was in agreement. Do you notice that? It says, Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom... Now, how many were there? Three. Who was one of them? Daniel. Did all of them come together and agree to what was about to happen? No, two out of three. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the perfects, the satraps, the high officials, the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Isn't that interesting? It says that all of us are in agreement. We've all come together. We've all agreed that this would be a good law. This would be a wonderful law. We've all come into agreement, so don't bother checking. All the commissioners, all the state trips, all the government officials, all the leaders, all of your key people are in agreement that this would be a good thing to do. Interesting, isn't it? We've all agreed. Now, as I think about this, I think about the trial of Jesus Christ. There's some tremendous parallels here. All of us have agreed the Sanhedrin. All of us have agreed. Well, we know that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus didn't agree. And they were on the council and they weren't there. But there's a tendency when there's deception to make other people believe that all of us are in agreement. You know what? They weren't all in agreement. There's no way they were all in agreement because we know Daniel wasn't even there. So we know he wasn't in agreement. And I'll tell you this right now. There's no way they got all these leaders together in a short period of time to come up with this decision. Because of the vast state of the empire, they were all over the place. There were days travel and journey to try to get everybody to meet in one place. So they weren't even there. The principle that I want to share with you is this at this point. Sin leads to sin. Sin leads to sin. The mental attitude, sin of envy and jealousy led to an act of vengeance by these men. What we think about, we become. Jesus said it was out of the heart of man or the mind of man or the center of man's personality that precedes all evil thoughts and acts of immorality and fornication and envy and hatred and strife and anger and murder. That it's out of our heart or out of our thoughts. What we think about, we become. Sin leads to sin. 
It always starts in the mind. Read chapter 1 of the book of James, where we're told, in fact, I want you to look at it real quick. The pattern is the same, and it's important that we understand it. James 1, 13 through 16. Let no one say when he's tempted that I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot, tempt, cannot be tempted to evil or by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. That when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. He says, don't be deceived by this, my brethren. This is truth. This is the pattern of sin. Notice what he says. That when we conceive it in our mind or in our hearts, it's not long before we take action upon that which we think about. And once we take action upon that which we think about, then guess what happens as a direct result? It bears forth or it, it bears sin and sin has its consequence, which is always death. Interesting, isn't it? Envy of Daniel ate at these men to the point where now they had to act upon this hatred and envy that they had in his heart. Hatred for Joseph in the, in the hearts of his brothers led them to act upon selling him into slavery so that they would never have to submit to his authority in their life. If you stop and think about this, sin always leads to more sin. From the very beginning, it was the thoughts of Adam as he thought about, well, why can't I eat the fruit that God says I can't eat and I can enjoy everything else in life? And as he dwelt on that and thought about that and thought it over, it began to you know, make sense to him according to rationalization and reason that was presented by the enemy who said, surely God didn't mean that when he said it. That doesn't make any sense. How can he tell you to enjoy everything but one thing? That doesn't make sense. And so he thought about it, he dwelled on it, and finally what happened was once that was conceived in his mind, I'm going to go ahead and do it, he went ahead and did it in the aid of the fruit. And the Bible says at that point he sinned before God. And as he sinned before God, it brought forth what? Spiritual and physical death. We see it often throughout Scripture, the same process or the same pattern. David, as he looked out upon the roof of his home and saw Bathsheba taking a bath or a shower, and I told you that's why they call her Bathsheba. But anyway... As he looked upon her, he saw her, and in his heart and in his mind, he said, I want her, and he coveted her. And as he thought those thoughts over and over again, we don't know if it was one day or two days or a week or two weeks that he was staring at her every night, taking this shower or bath that she was taking. And after a while, he finally says, he coveted her and wanted her in his heart, and then he sent for her, and then they had an act of sexual immorality, and at that point, he died as far as his spiritual integrity was concerned. And he suffered the consequences because of it. We see that in the life of Achan and Joshua, in the book of Joshua. He saw the spoils of the enemy. He coveted what he saw. He wanted them. Finally, he took them, and then he hid them in his tent. You know what's interesting about this pattern? Don't miss this. It's very important that our sin begins in our thought life. It's carried out in our actions. And as we act upon these thoughts that are wrong before God, we enter into what God says is sin. And, and inevitably, what we want to do is what? Cover it up. We want to hide it. Adam was hit, hiding from God. Why? He was hiding because of what he did. Why did David hide his sin? Because of what he did. He tried to hide it by having Uriah the Hittite sleep with his wife and hopefully that they would have sexual relation, that, that she would become impregnated in her mind and in the mind of everybody else's by her husband. But he wouldn't do that because he didn't want to dishonor his own military personnel who were out in the field while he was at home, so he slept outside. And the Bible says that he did not go into the house and he did not have a relationship with his wife. And so David, to try to hide his sin, sent Uriah to the front line so that he would be murdered and executed. He knew that he wouldn't come back. The pattern of sin is always the same. Why did Achan hide it in his tent? He saw it, he wanted it, he took it, and he hid it. 
Why? Because it's sin before God. And that's the pattern. Don't ever miss that and don't understand it. So we have nonsense taking place in our world today. And I want you to recognize it according to the truth of the Word of God, the objective standard by which we must measure everything. We have nonsense taking place in the word world today as far as what we're hearing around us. And let me just explain it very clearly. We hear this. What he does in his sex life is his business, but it bothers me that he lied. I don't trust him, but he's doing a good job. Duh. He lied because what he did was wrong before God. It is just not the fact that he lied. It is the sin of immorality that is wrong before God. How can we live in a world that says, well, I believe that lying is wrong, but I don't have a problem with sexual immorality. How nonsensical have we become? And what a devil's standard and hypocrisy that we find all around us. Well, I don't care if he does it, but I better never let my husband think he can get away with it. What kind of nonsense is that? What kind of double standard is that? And then he stands before us and he says, even presidents have personal lives. No, they don't. Because when he swore to uphold the oath of office, he became a public figure and he's held to a greater standard of accountability. He is not like you and I, even though you and I still have the standard of God as far as God is concerned. We're still held to that standard, but he's not like the average Joe on the street. And he cannot demean the office of presidency and bring himself down to the level of every guy out in the world today and says, well, everybody else is doing it and they have a private life and we don't dig into it. Let me ask you a question. When he put his hand on the Bible and he held his right hand before God, was this hand with this finger crossed? I will uphold the office of presidency. I've got friends who are in the military and they told me the same thing that I want to share with you and that's this. Do you realize that the lowest, the lowest ranking uh, soldier in the military is held to a greater standard than the standard that he wants to be held to by the American people? That is not possible. Why? Because he's the commander-in-chief of our armed services. He, by office, is the highest ranking official in the military. How can he be held to a standard that's different than the lowest ranking soldier in the armed forces? Even presidents have personal lives? No, they don't. Not when they're upholding the office of the presidency of the United States. We need to recognize it. And this isn't about politics. You know, some of you are sitting there going, this is, oh, that's a political statement. This isn't about politics. This isn't about Democrats or Republicans or independents. This is about a standard that is objective and doesn't care whether you're a Democrat, a Republican, an independent, white, black, yellow, pink, green, blue, young, old, doesn't matter. God's standards are the same for all of us. And it's not surprising when you consider one's personal state of morality or lack of it, that policy would evolve as a result. It is not surprising that a commander-in-chief who is guilty of immorality himself would say, we need to adopt a new policy for our military. Don't ask, don't tell. That's not a surprise, is it? Because what we think is what we become. Jesus said, if any man lusts after a woman in his own heart, that it isn't going to be long 
before he is guilty of adultery before God. It starts in our minds. It starts the way we think. And our world doesn't know how to think any longer. That's why there's such confusion. It's rampant. That's why we look and we measure performance. We hear what people are saying and the polls say one thing and the performance says something else. And we don't understand how this all makes sense. It doesn't make sense. Because we have gotten so deceived that we have gotten away from an objective standard of measurement. It's like me crawling around under a building thinking I know where I am and I don't have a clue where I am. Our world is morally adrift because we've lost the anchor, the compass that we need of moral absolutes that are found in the Word of God. All performance, all behavior must go back to an objective form of measurement or we are all hopelessly lost and morally adrift and only God can help us get us back on the right course. The Bible says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and then I will heal their land. What frightens me is not that the world doesn't have standards. What frightens me is that God's people have lost their way and have forgot about the moral anchor that we have in the Word of God. We need to be men and women who stand upon the Word of God and nothing else is our standard for behavior. God measures everything against this book, whether we like it or not. You can't say lying is wrong, but sexual immorality is okay. The Word is complete. The full counsel of God gives us everything that we need to know. You cannot pick and choose. The Bible is not God's version of a Chinese restaurant menu. It's the entire counsel of God. And God's Word is truth. God's Word sanctifies us. God's Word separates us from the nonsense that we see in the world. God's Word keeps us from going down that way that seems right before men, but its end is destruction. God's world, Word keeps us on a narrow path. It's a light unto our, our feet. It's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It shows us where we are, how far away we are from God, where we need to go to get right, and then where to continue on our journey and walking with the Lord. We need to recognize and understand that. And also, it's not a right-wing conspiracy if the accusation against the person are true. It's interesting. And it's not the investigator's fault. You can't blame the investigator for your own criminal behavior. God help us if we bought that line. The prisons are filled with people who said, well, it's not my fault. They came after me. They investigated. They caught me, but it's not my fault. It's their fault for looking for me. God help us if we lived in a world like that. Could you even imagine what it'd be like? How crazy is that? You know what's interesting? I can't help but contrast what we have happening in our world today to that of this man of integrity that God has recorded for us, this man, Daniel. His conduct was above reproach. He was faithful. There was no negligence in him. There was no corruption in him. His conviction would become the point of their attack. We know he loves God. We know he does what's right according to his God and his word. So therefore, we must find somehow to set a trap so that we get him with that regard because we can't find him guilty of anything else. Man, I love that. The conspiracy was presented as though everyone agreed to it. And the final point in this particular section, which was kind of interesting, was the command was to be unalterable. Notice what they said. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Isn't that interesting? If you remember the vision that God gave Daniel of the panorama of world empires, we saw the first one was that of a head of gold. And from there, it deteriorated. 
Nebuchadnezzar could do anything he wanted, whenever he wanted. He had absolute autonomy. He was an absolute monarch, true to form. Anything he said went. Anything he wanted, that's the way it was. But as the kingdoms began to deteriorate, what happened was the laws of the Medes and Persians were basically this. It was almost a congressional effect. The king could not enter into a law without all of the leadership agreeing to what that law would become. And then when he signed that law, once he signed it, he himself then was subject to that standard of law, and that was the law of the Medes and Persians, which was not revocable. Once it took place, once he signed this law into effect, then even he himself was held accountable by that standard. And what's interesting is I think our own system of, of government runs pretty much the same, and that's this. There are none of us, not one person is above the law. We are all held to the same standard as far as behavior is concerned. No one, as we say, is above the law. And the Medes and the Persians instituted this format of government where, you know what, Darius knew if I sign this into law that I too would be subject to the same and very law that I'm going to, to uh, enact. Now, what's interesting about this is how did they trick Darius into this? How did they trick him into this? You notice how they did it? Look at it says, O King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners, the kingdom, the, the kingdom of perfects and the satraps, the high officials, governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition, notice here's where they're going to get him, a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, O mighty one, you're the great one. You notice how they did that? You ever have your kids come to you and they start flattering you and buttering you up? Now, I know someone going, Gee. first thing that comes to my mind is this, what's up? What's going on? What do you want? How much you need? Right? It's kind of like, you know, hey, hey, Dad, you know, if I told you what a great dad you've been lately, you're the greatest dad, man. You know, I was just comparing you to other dads I know, and you're like, the, you're like here, man. I mean, you're way up there. And it's like, yeah, all right. And then, you know, and what's so silly about us, we like, this saying that we'd be reaching for our wallet already. It's like, you know, hey, you know, how much can I get for, you know, a 10? Oh, Dad, you know, for a 10. Well, you know, I'm thinking, great, great. Oh, you're thinking 50. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, that's the way we are. And we love that, man, and we fall for that. And this guy fell for it. He's the king of this empire, and he falls for this. You're the greatest. We all got together, and we agreed you're the greatest. And in fact, we've come up with a plan, and the plan is, is that we need a law, just for 30 days, by the way, you know, notice that, too. You know, you know, you're the greatest for 30 days, but let's not get carried away. You know, he didn't even see that. He didn't even hear that. He'd be like, 30 days, that's great. 30 days, you're the greatest. No one's to pray to any other God but you. Wow. Flattery. Don't ever buy into it. I learned a long time ago, this is true of my life. I'm never as bad as my critics think, and I'm never as good as my friends think either. You know what I'm saying? It's just like somewhere in the middle is where we want to be. I like what one uh, seminary professor said, and I want to read this to you because it's great. He used to tell his students, he said, Fellas, it doesn't matter how poor a preacher you are or what church you're in, the Lord will always have some dear lady who will tell you how wonderful you are. So come up to you after you've preached the lousiest sermon you've ever preached in the world, and she'll tell you, My, I think you're another Dwight L. Moody. It's nice to have such dear ladies who want to encourage you like that, but don't believe them. There's a danger if you do. Isn't that the truth? Don't buy into it. Don't buy into the flattery. But unfortunately for Darius, he bought it hook, line, and sinker. Isn't that interesting? If we think about that, he bought it hook, line, and sinker. You know what's interesting too is that there's a principle here and that's this. He signed a law into effect 
that basically was aimed at destroying one human being. The purpose of government is to protect citizenry as a whole. Laws are never to be enacted to point out any one group. They're to be a standard that is for all people to be protected under the standard of laws and government. Romans 13 says that all government's established by God and it's a ministering agent for our benefit that we should never enact a law that's aimed specifically at any one group. That's what Hitler did in Nazi Germany. He enacted a law that aimed to destroy one group of people. And we look back on that and we need to learn from that. We need to learn from what happens here as far as Daniel is concerned. These people enacted a law that was designed to destroy one person and one person only. Daniel was, and Darius, as a result, was now a victim of his own sin, the sin of wanting to be God, the same sin of pride that Nebuchadnezzar fell into, the same sin of pride that Belshazzar fell into, the same sin of pride that you and I fall into when we buy into flattery at the expense of the truth of God's word. At that particular point, Darius, all he had to say was, you know what, I don't want people worshiping me. He didn't say that. Why? Because he wanted people worshiping him. He thought it was a great plan. He thought it was a good deal. It's Honor Darius Month. 30 days, man. No other gods but me. I'm, a, I'm on top of the world. He fell into the same trap that Nebuchadnezzar did when he, when he erected that golden image that he wanted everybody to worship. Isn't that sad? How easy we, we buy into sinful behavior. We need an objective standard, don't we? Well, Daniel finds himself, again, between the rock and the hard place. And the question I have for you is this, what is he going to do this time? Is he going to cave in finally? After all, 60-some years of consistency, man, it gets a little old after a while, doesn't it? Is he going to compromise in this particular case? Or is he going to continue to lean against the rock that we learned the rock is Jesus Christ our Lord? I say he leans against the rock because look what he does in verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house, and now in his roof chamber he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had done previously. Can you imagine? Daniel knew that this law was legislated specifically to destroy him. He could have rationalized very simply and easily that, you know what? I'm not going to let, I'm not going to play into their hands, Lord. Certainly you don't want that. We're smarter than them. We know why they signed this law. And so, God, if you don't mind, I'm going on vacation for 30 days. At the end of the 30 days, I'll resume our normal relationship where three times a day in the consistency of Daniel's life with God, he entered into his chamber and he prayed facing Jerusalem, which was because as his people were in captive, at captivity, the word of God told him that you would always face Jerusalem as a constant reminder that one day God would establish his kingdom here on earth. So they prayed facing Jerusalem. Three times a day, Daniel did that. He was faithful. He was consistent. And not only that, he did it for 60-some years while he was away from Jerusalem. So now they enact this law, and basically the law is to say, hey, you know what? Can you imagine his enemies knew Daniel would never compromise? He didn't on the diet. He didn't on the dreams. He didn't on anything that he'd done up to that point. They knew he wouldn't do it, even though they had a law that was only 30 days old. Even he wouldn't compromise for 30 days, 30 minutes, 3 seconds. It says that he went back up to the window where his chamber faced Jerusalem and he got down on his knees and he consistently prayed to God as he always did. They didn't change his relationship with God. Their threats didn't do it. 
Nebuchadnezzar's threats to Daniel's friends didn't do it. Worship the idol or the fiery furnace? What's it going to be? Hey, it's for us. We don't have an option. We're going to worship God. God always comes first. If it means that we die and God chooses, that's the way we're going to go out, then that's the way it's going to be. Even if he chooses to save us, great. If he chooses to allow us to die, it doesn't matter because we trust him and we know he's got you know, everything under control. What a wonderful comfort and peace there is to know that you and I never have to compromise before men our relationship with God. Do you believe that? Some of us don't enter into that fellowship and, and that intimacy with God because we compromise at the first sign of trouble. As soon as our faith put to the test, what do we do? Oh, well, you know what, God? Um, I'll keep praying, but I'll do it privately or quietly. It's kind of like I see, it's like people, have you ever been in a restaurant and you're praying or whatever and you want to hurry up before the waitress comes back? Here she comes. Amen. Well, you know, it's like, and it's funny because it's a great opportunity. I mean, have you ever been praying and you got the waitress going, what's wrong? Is there something? In, what's wrong with the food? Something down on your plate? What is that? You know, like, we're praying. You're what? What's that? We, got, we live in a world that doesn't even know what praying is anymore. First sign of danger. God, you know our hearts. I'm not going to go and do it the way I used to do it because, you know, we don't want to fall into their trap. So I'm going to change everything about my relationship with you to accommodate these men. Daniel didn't buy into it. He never compromised. Business as usual with God. And I believe this about Daniel. I believe that Daniel smiled when he knelt down to pray. And he said, Lord, this is going to be a good one. Because they got me this time. But you know what? I'm in your hands. And you notice what he did? It says Daniel knew the document was signed. He continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying. And notice this. I'm between a rock and a hard spot, God. But you know what? I can't help but keep giving you thanks. How about you? When you're between a rock and a hard spot, do you find yourself blaming God? Do you find yourself wondering about God's plans? Or do you find yourself praising God and thanking Him for the position that He put you in? There's no better position in life to be in a rock and a hard spot because when God delivers us, what a great testimony we have to the world around us. When God sets us free from it, we can't wait to tell people, you know what, this isn't about me, this is about God, our great deliverer. And not only can he set us free from the crisis of the moment, but he sets us free from the greatest crisis known to man, and that is this, that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in closing, I want to make something very clear to you, which is, which is uh, confusing in the world that we live in, and that's basically this. We hear this all the time. Everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing it. None of us are perfect. Who's perfect? And, and to that I say this. Not everybody is guilty of sexual immorality. You understand what I'm saying? Not everybody is cheating on their wife. You got it? But I will say this about that line. None of us are perfect. And every one of us are guilty according to the objective standard of God. What we need to recognize in this, the Bible says that none of us are righteous, no, not one. All of us are guilty before God. Every single one of us. While it may not be sexual immorality, it may be anger, it may be envy, it may be lying, it may be cheating, it may be stealing. It may just be the simple fact that we don't honor God first in our life, which is the greatest commandment, that He comes first. And we put ourselves before Him. We, we covet our neighbor's goods. We covet our neighbor's possessions. Uh, you know, we're, we're murderers, we're liars, we're cheats, we're thieves. Hey, none of us are perfect. It's important that we understand that. There's none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says that we're all guilty before God. And as a result, the justice must be served that you and I are held guilty before God and we will experience the judgment of God because of that guilt. That's plain and simple. The Bible says that God so loved this world that He sent His only begotten Son into this world 
that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Because the Bible says that God did not send Jesus into the world to condemn it because this world had been condemned already. Our world is on a path that goes straight to hell. We are judged by God because since Adam's sin entered into the world and every one of us from that day has chosen to sin and, our, and as a result of our sin nature because we are dead spiritually, we live a life accordingly. The Bible says that all of us are lost in a sea morally adrift and that there is no hope for us. We are all going to drown. And if that was the end of the story, it would be a very depressing morning. But it's not. Because God says, for the wages of sin is death, spiritual death, separation from God for all of eternity in a place called hell. But the Bible says, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You and I are found drowning in our sins with no hope of rescue. The standard of God is the word of God and he measures us against that word objectively. The Bible says that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. That's the greatest commandment. Are you guilty of that? I have been. The Bible says, Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not cheat. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods or thy neighbor's wife. Thou shalt honor thy father and your mother. You know what the Word of God teaches us? That none of us are righteous. None of us can uphold that standard. It's an impossibility. The righteousness of God that's found in the law is used by God as a tutor that leads us to the fact that, you know what? We are all guilty before God. And the law is God's way of leading us to realize that you and I need a Savior because we cannot save ourselves. The Bible says that the law of God is a tutor that leads us to Christ. The Bible says, what shall we do to be saved from the consequences of sin? What shall we be do, do to be saved from the fact that we are condemned before God and we're on our way to hell? The Bible says this, what shall we do to be saved from that judgment, that consequence? The Bible says you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and that you shall be saved. You and I are lost in the sea and we're about to drown and God has sent us a lifeboat and that lifeboat is Jesus Christ himself. And the Bible says, get in or you're going to die. And you have a choice at that point. I'll wait for a cruise ship to come by. It's not going to happen. I'll wait for a helicopter to come by. It's not going to happen. You know this guy who just ditched his, his balloon off the Great Barrier Reef in Australia? I was thinking about him as he was adrift in this little capsule in this little lifeboat for 20-some hours. Could you imagine how, how ludicrous it would have been when the first boat that came by to rescue him after he was convinced he was going to die, he looked at him and said, uh, Do you have a little, does anybody come with a little nicer vessel? A little nicer package, please? I'd like it to be packaged differently. Can you imagine how ludicrous that would be? We live in a world today that God says, you know what? You're going to drown. You're going to hell. You are hopelessly lost. But I got great news for you. I sent Jesus Christ to die in your place, to take your judgment upon him. And if you just believe that in faith and trust him, then you will never experience the consequences that are rightfully deserving of you because you believed in Jesus Christ. He sent the life raft, and he just says basically this. He gives man the freedom. You can drown or you can get in. 